Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, the story of the first woman artist in Europe to achieve commercial success, the history of tea, and to end the show, a new film on the life and career of the 18th century classical composer and violinist whose career was held back because of his skin colour. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we looked at the life, death and legacy of Charles I and found out how the English monarch lost his throne and his head. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with a trailblazer and rule breaker. Lavinia Fontana was a groundbreaking artist of her time, a late 16th century 
documentary artist who is widely considered to be the first woman artist to achieve professional success beyond the confines of a court or a convent. And she was the first woman to manage her own workshop and the first woman to paint public altarpieces and female nudes. And a brilliant new exhibition is running in the National Gallery of Ireland. It's called the Vinia Fontana Trailblazer Rule Breaker and it's showcasing work by this groundbreaking Renaissance artist and objects from the time. It's supported by Bank of America and is running from the 6th of May all the way up to the 27th of August so it's already open and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Aoife Brady who's the creator of the exhibition. Aoife you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much Patrick I'm delighted to be here. So tell us about Lavinia Fontana the world that she lived in that she worked in and why she's considered such a trailblazer and rule breaker. Lavinia Fontana was born in late 16th century Bologna and Bologna was a very special place in the Renaissance period in that it was home to Europe's oldest university, is home to Europe's oldest university, I should say. And as such, it was a sort of a city with forward thinkers. And we find that people were allowed sort of more freedoms in Bologna than in its neighbouring cities that were ruled by courts. Bologna was the second papal city to Rome and it was ruled by a senatorial class. And it had this sort of very special environment that enabled Lavinia Fontana to pursue a professional career as an artist. Now, she had to break many rules, as you've said, to to get there, to become a professional artist in this period, because this is a time in which women weren't allowed to join artists' academies, they weren't allowed access into important guilds, and they wouldn't have been allowed to train in the traditional way in another artist's studio side by side with with their male contemporaries. So Lavinia's route into this profession was a little bit different. And she was trained by her father, who had the wonderful name uh, Prospero. Prospero is right, although Prospero was not very prosperous, unfortunately. Prospero Fontana was an artist in his own right and a very accomplished artist in the 16th century. His crowning commission came in the 1560s when he painted for Pope Julius III. But shortly after that, Prospero became sick and... As all of a sudden, he, he had to sort of find a new way in it to earn money for his family. His family's financial future was called into question. And so he begins to train his daughter and that allows her access into this traditionally male-dominated profession. And she seems to have done everything and certainly the, the, the entire spectrum because she worked with uh, public altarpieces and painted them, but she also painted female nudes. And I'm sure in the late 1500s, it would have been considered quite remarkable and probably quite shocking to have a woman painting female nudes. Absolutely. She's remarkable in so many ways. Before Lavinia Fontana, women were really only expected to paint things like still life, flower painting, portraiture. But Fontana really breaks the mould. Not only, as you say, does she begin to paint large-scale public altarpieces, public paintings, but then she engages in these sort of erotic, very racy pictures that were absolutely radical for a woman working at the end of the 1500s. And she also had a family as well, I think something like 11 children. So, and, and you know, it must have been incredible to, to be a, a successful artist with her own workshop because she went away and established her own workshop, but then to have to, to provide for her family as well. It's extraordinary when you think about it. 11 children were born to Lavinia Fontana and her husband, Gian Paolo, between 1578 and 1595. So the artist was pregnant for most of her professional career and still is incredibly prolific. We see that she's producing works of varying subject matter on large and small scale throughout that period of time. Uh, and tragically, then, she had to deal with a lot of loss. You know, infant mortality rates were very high in this period. Seven of of Lavinia Fontana's children died before they reached adolescence and only three of them survived her. The exhibition is called Trailblazer, Rule Breaker. In terms of blazing that trail, did she inspire other women uh, to follow in her footsteps or were the barriers too great? 
No, she really did inspire many people after her. Lavinia Fontana, as you've noted, was the first woman to achieve commercial success outside of the confines of a court or a convent, which was the traditional environment in which women could practice art, but non-commercially. So after Fontana, we see a, a sort of um, a renaissance for women artists, and that really happens in Bologna, in her hometown. And Bologna becomes sort of the, the home to the largest school of women artists between the 16th and 18th centuries. So she really spawns this this huge movement. So tell us what's in the exhibition then. I think there's 50 works drawn from across Europe, drawn from across the United States as well, galleries, private collections and objects as well. Yes, so we have about 50, 50 objects by Lavinia Fontana, so 50 paintings and drawings by her. And as you say, they're, they're drawn from places as far flung as Los Angeles to Dresden to Paris and more. And then we have these objects, these objects related to the material culture of the time, really to try to give people a sense of what it was like to live in Bologna in the 16th century, and also to demonstrate that what you're seeing in Fontana's paintings is reflected in real life, in Renaissance life. And how good an artist do you think she was? I think she was an extraordinary artist, and it seems that her clients in Bologna agreed, because she became a real celebrity artist of her time. Her early biographers talk about women in the streets flocking to her, all of them wanting to have their portraits painted. And later on, she's, you know, celebrated with these major, major accolades. She's invited, for example, to paint for the court of Pope Paul V in the Vatican. So no higher honour could you achieve um, as a Renaissance artist, really. And, you know, when you look at her paintings, you kind of realise why she, particularly in her portraits, she imbues her sitters with this sense of great authority and independence and they all have a sense of sort of individuality. When you meet them, you really do feel like you can engage with these real people. And then the way that she paints their costume, their finery is extraordinary in its detail. And she really understood the power of fashion and jewellery and what these things could communicate about a person. So why isn't she a household name then? Or is she a name that art historians will know, but not maybe the general public? Or uh, was she maybe excluded from some of the discussions of great artists for a period? Well, she absolutely was excluded from the discussions of great artists, as were many early modern women painters um, and makers. So we find that, you know, this is an issue, this is an imbalance in our sort of appreciation for art history more widely, that women were not necessarily seen as part of the artistic canon, this sort of, you know, not considered part of the sort of legions of Raphael and Leonardo and and Donatello and others. You know, Giorgio Vasari is this famous biographer who writes the lives of the Renaissance painters, and he devotes 142 biographies to men and only one to women. So that imbalance was there right from the beginning, and it's carried forward through the centuries. And it's only really in recent decades that we've seen a resurgence of interest in women artists and what they were doing, because we know now that they were active and they were appreciated in their day, but they've more or less been excluded from the historiography that we, we've come to understand. And she did quite brilliant work and quite different work and was very interested in the idea of mythology and how to explore that through her works. Well, this is it. If you come into the National Gallery and see the exhibition, what you'll be struck by, I hope, from walking through the five rooms is the diversity of subject matter that she addressed. So she goes right from sort of formal portraits to fun, sweet portraits of children, commemorative portraits, and then, as you say, into mythology, into sort of very mysterious, strange iconographies that... Uh, you know, are, are really peculiar to our modern eyes, but really interesting to look at. And then, as you say, these very salacious pictures where we know uh, we're looking at real noble women, you know, d- depicted as the, in the guise of mythological goddesses. 
and Bank of America is supporting the exhibition and it's running, as I said, until the 27th of August. So it really is an opportunity for people to come in. And I'm very much struck by your enthusiasm for it, your passion that it's clear that uh, running an exhibition on on Lavinia Fontana, it's a way of, of reminding people that actually it's not just in recent years that women have been producing great artworks. You can go back, you know, 500 years and see uh, someone who was hugely respected, considered brilliant in her own lifetime. Absolutely. And I really want to introduce Lavinia Fontana to our audience here in Dublin. And I'm really privileged to be able to do that with such, you know, an extraordinary series of loans that have been extended to us generously from institutions and private individuals all over the world. This is a really major and important opportunity for people in Dublin to to encounter this special Renaissance artist and to see what Lavinia Fontana could really do. And it's a very nice day out for people. Absolutely, I hope so. And tell me, do you have a particular favourite work? Is there something in these five rooms that uh, we should, uh, when we go into it, we should say, OK, this was Aoife's favourite one. This is the one that we should really focus on. It's a difficult qu- uh, question because really, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not waxing lyrical here, but we have so many extraordinary masterpieces, but I'll name just two. One is the Gozzadini family portrait that's come to us from the Pinacoteca Nazionale di Bologna, Bologna's National Museum. And it's a large multi-figure composition that looks at first glance like a formal portrait. But when you start to dig into the narrative that underpins it, you realise that there's this incredible family drama being narrated through the five figures depicted. And you can read all about it on our wall texts if you come in. And the second I'll, I'll point you all to is our own painting, The Visit of the Queen of Sheba to King Solomon. This is a painting that's been in Ireland's national collection since 1872 and was restored with a, with a grant from Bank of America between 2019 and 2021. It's Fontana's largest surviving composition. It's the most ambitious work that she ever made and it belongs to us here in Ireland. So it's really worth coming to see in context for the very first time in an exhibition devoted to Lavinia Fontana and I hope you'll come in and have a look. So we've always had this really crucial artwork that she did and I've seen it. It's 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 uh, so many of us will have seen it, but without knowing maybe this, without knowing the story of the artist, without knowing actually this was a groundbreaking Renaissance artist, a woman who who did blaze this trail. Well, this is it. And, you know, many people will be familiar with this picture if they're regular gallery goers or even if they just came in as a child because it's been in our collection for such a very long time. But I'm not sure that we've really appreciated the significance of the painting. This is an internationally renowned work of art and it's a very special thing for us to have here. And to be able to build an exhibition around that has been a great pleasure, I must say. You mentioned that she was a celebrity in her own lifetime. Was she a rich celebrity? Did she make money from her work? She certainly did make money. Now, it's difficult to to say exactly what she was making and oftentimes her fees are not recorded. But we know that she was able, for example, in the 1580s to move her family's studio from one side of Bologna to the other, uh, placing it right in the centre of the two streets that housed all of the main pal- palazzi, so the main palaces that uh, her, her richest patrons would have lived in. So she had the money to do that and she was very keen um, in terms of marketing herself. She was quite an astute and strategic artist in that way. So I think that she made a good living and she was able to support her entire family, her parents, her, her in-laws and her 11 children. Given that she did blaze this trail, what went wrong then afterwards? Why, why did it take so long for uh, other women artists to be able to, to make the breakthrough? And was it just that the patriarchy reasserted itself again afterwards? 
Well, it's an interesting question because in the 17th century, there were a lot of women artists active. And again, this is a sort of um, historical issue where they've not necessarily received the same attention over time as their male contemporaries. So they're not so, we're not so familiar with them anymore. But we know, for example, that the young Artemisia Gentileschi was aware of Lavinia Fontana. They would have been in Rome at the same time in the early 17th, 17th century. And so, you know, Lavinia really inspires Artemisia. And then, as I said, in Bologna itself, we get this massive explosion of women artists working right through the 1600s. So there was an immediate legacy for Fontana. It's just not necessarily one we're familiar with now in the 21st century. Now, I'll end with an unfair question. Where should she feature or where would she feature in the pantheon of great artists? Are we talking about someone at the the very first rank or someone maybe at the, the top of the second rank? Well, I'm not sure that even with a doctorate from Trinity College that I'm qualified to rank artists in that way but I think that she deserves a place up in that pantheon very much not only for the extraordinary works of art that she made but also for the trail that she blazed Okay, well it's a brilliant new exhibition running in the National Gallery of Ireland until the 27th of August It's called Lavinia Fontana Trailblazer Rule Breaker and I'm delighted to have been joined by Dr Aoife Brady the curator of the exhibition Now I think there's time for us to uh, make a quick cup of tea because we're going to be back after the break with the history of tea Well, welcome back to Talking History I'm delighted to be joined now by Nisha Tandon Chief Executive of the Arts Ecta Cultural Organisation who's involved in a brilliant new exhibition running in the Tower Museum in Derry on the history of tea and the wonderful connections uh, between our island and India, China and further afield The exhibition is called You, Me and Tea It's running until the 30th of June and we'll be travelling around Northern Ireland and Nisha, you're very welcome to the show tonight Thank you, Patrick. Well, let's just start with the history of tea. Like, how far back does it go? And are the connections to India? Is it to China? Where exactly did did these islands get the idea of drinking tea? Well, when the tea was produced, must be about 18th century in China. And it was then never discovered outside China in any shape or form. At that time, the kings and the queens and the royals of all countries all over the world, you know, whenever they were traveling, they brought this little item, which people would thought, what is this, you know? But it was after that, um, it just sort of exploded into from China to India. And from when the British ruled India, it came to Britain. And from there, it was the East India Company Basically, it was the slave trade at that time, but it was in British rule introduced and only the rich could drink the tea in those days, whenever in India as well. Uh, It came to England in London and again, it was only in the very, very well-off households who could afford this. Then it travelled a little bit further afield and the migration of uh, of people from uh, London to our lovely island and explored the tea. And it was then brought into our building shipyard industry. So it was basically the Sirocco Works, uh, which then discovered a machinery that uh, it is, the drying of the leaves and all that is such a hard labor. So they produced, they actually manufactured uh, the parts of the tea drying 
uh, machinery here in Belfast. Uh, and that was then exported to India in Nilgiris and Darjeeling and Assam teas and, you know, you name it, the beautiful teas which we have in a Indian subcontinent. That started the real trade mission between India and Northern Ireland. And then it traveled to the other parts of Ireland as well. And it's just, it's amazing stories. And without tea, now India was never a tea drinker. Neither was the people from Ireland or Ireland. And today we are so lucky to have some of the companies who are the top companies here in Ireland of Ireland who are importing teas and also have started to manufacture the tea here as well because it has got the weather it requires, especially this time of the year. Yeah, that is so, incredible. There's a tea plantation in Northern Ireland. That's right, in Porto Ferry, yeah. But is the weather good enough for it? Well, they are experimenting and it's going to be in the greenhouses and then once the, the plant takes off, it is going to be planted out. Yes, it is. We have visited Porto Ferry uh, units and honestly, it just, I was just mind boggled to see that how they can do it, but they are doing it. Now, maybe the flavours might not be as what you will get with your best of the best of the best, but at least they're trying, you know. And people drink tea in different ways and there's all different traditions and approaches. And But the idea of putting milk in with the tea, that's something that on these islands a lot of people do. But uh, people might look at you strangely if you were doing that in other countries. That's right. Yeah, but in India as well, I mean, the milk was something which you had to drink with tea. You know, you have to pour milk and tea leaves are boiled together with lots of Ayurveda spices and that is called the Indian chai and you just have to start your day with it. But then if you go further afield of South Far East Asian countries like Japan and China and so many other countries, Indonesia, Bali, Malaysia, they don't drink tea with milk and their tea is very, very lightly flavoured in different herbal ways. It is beautiful the way the Chinese, the Japanese, and with the Chinese and Japanese, there's a huge big ceremony around tea before they pour their tea in their pot. They have to, oh my goodness, I I just seen it and I was just wondering, oh my God. And this exists here in in Belfast. Uh, We have a young fellow here who has kept his grannies and granddads traditions alive and he's only about what 21 or 22 and he is just doing these tea ceremonies which are just amazing to see. What about the idea of tea bags because again you know some some cultures and societies would wouldn't use the bags. No in India we don't use tea bags but I think as the generations are changing people are becoming a little bit lazy as well they just like to dip, dip, dip their tea um, in their cup, not boil it, don't do anything, and it's instant. So there is the instant flavors which are now acquired by 
the the upcoming and the forthcoming generations. But whenever we were growing up, I remember my and granny or my mum, she cannot have a tea bag tea. She needs to have her tea properly brewed. It has to be with tea leaves and also very strong tea leaves. Yeah. And why do you think we love tea so much? And, you know, it's such a an important part of, of society. You see it uh, with, you know, Mrs. Doyle and Father Ted, you know, the <laughs> cup of tea is is, is so central to, to the storylines that it seems to have a, a special place in our homes. Is it because we particularly love the taste or is it just the all the social aspects that are around it in terms of, of, of hanging out with people and the conversation and the chats and all of that? I think it is basically the social element of it. Tea is something which relaxes and soothes everybody. And a lot of good memories come with a cup of tea, as far as I can think of. Now, it, the exhibition is wonderful for exploring the trade links and the social connections and all of that. But it's also it's also showcasing the diversity in Northern Ireland and the diverse connections in different communities with tea. That's right, yeah. Like with, with, we started the project with just India and China and integrating those two communities, first of all, together, and then bringing them to our local uh, community groups and schools and, and other women's groups. And so it went just further field for us. Uh, but I think it is such an important way uh, to integrate and talk, talk and tell your lived experiences and tell your true stories. And then from there, we have the new communities who have just become part of our organization. So people from Iran, people from Syria, people from Somalia, people from Sudan, every one of them have a tea as their story or of their country. But what comes out of it and how they make it is absolutely fantastic. The Turkish tea is just awesome. So, yeah, so there is just a a way of bringing people's lived experiences and people's integration through specific common theme. And that common theme is tea. You're gathering these wonderful oral histories then and stories and links that people might have, whether from the Belfast docks or from the tea rooms or all these different connections that people have with tea. So what reactions are people having to the exhibition then? How are people responding to, you know, all of these different global connections and the global story of tea? They love it. And specifically the older generation, you know, they just, think that it is a very, very important ingredient of their uh, heritage. Uh, without tea, uh, because manufacturing industry, even even just a small corner shop, you know, all these sort of things they just discuss. So yeah, it's just wonderful to see those oral history, heritage basically, you know, has come out of tea. But maybe the way we drink tea might change like you know it might be more herbal teas more you know ayurveda teas and anything to do with our health and well-being i think that's the way the tea will take shape 
And yes, nothing wrong with coffee. There's such a big promotion which goes on with coffee, but I think the tea is so, so important as well uh, for all aspects of our life. And I think it will keep keep its memento for a long, long, long time. Wonderful. And this exhibition will be running in Derry's uh, Tower Museum until the 30th of June. You're going on tour after that? Yes, we are. We are going uh, to... Lennon Hall Library, and then we are going to Dan Patrick Museum. We will be traveling to Bleak House, where they are going to be doing the the tea exhibition there as well, because Bleak House has given us uh, some loan of their old tea pots and all. So yeah, and then Ulster Museum, where it will um, finish. Uh, so we have still a long journey to do um, for another maybe eight to ten months yeah and of course mentioning Belik you know we think of the china and the crockery and all of that because that's a that's an important part of the story as well it is yeah so there is a display of all different types of tea parts which are from around the world and people genuinely genuinely wanted to contribute people genuinely wanted to be uh, telling their stories um, over a cup of tea. <laughs> well, it's always great to have someone who's who's a true believer in in the exhibition or the conference they're talking about. And you're definitely passionate about your love of tea. Oh, I am. Thanks to Nisha Tandon for joining me tonight to talk about the You, Me and Tea exhibition. It's running in the Tara Museum in Derry until the 30th of June. Then we'll be going on a tour around. And uh, Nisha, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Patrick, for having me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Welcome back to Talking History. On the 9th of June, a new film will be opening called Chevalier, based on the life of the long-overlooked classical composer Joseph Bologna, who was a champion fencer as well as a composer and as devastating with the foil as with the fiddlestick. And the movie traces his life from his origins on a slave plantation to his acquaintance with Marie Antoinette, the last Queen of France before the Revolution. And to talk to me about this new movie, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Julia Doe of the Department of Music at Columbia University. She's an expert on historical musicology and 18th century opera and the author of The Comedians of the King. Julia, you're very welcome to the show tonight. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Can we talk about Joseph Bologna? I had never heard of him before, uh, but he seems to be this remarkable figure, a a composer, a violinist, uh, a fencer as well. Yes, absolutely. As a music historian, my first impulse is to emphasize Bologna's musical accomplishments. Uh, He was a virtuoso violinist and composer, hailing from Guadeloupe, but making his living in 18th century metropolitan France, and with an output that appealed equally to court patrons, to aristocratic salonniers, and to a broad concert public. Um, But in contrast to many other famous Enlightenment-era composers, people like Mozart or Haydn, um, music was just one small facet of Bologna's truly remarkable personal and professional identity. As you've said, he enjoyed great success as a fencer, great renown as a fencer. Um, By the 1790s, he would be serving as an officer in the Revolutionary Army. Um, So quite extraordinary accomplishments and worthy of a film, certainly. 
So talk to us about his background then. Uh, his father was a plantation owner, French. His mother was a slave. And he grew up then mixed race. And uh, I think his father had to flee to France and uh, to, I think, escape a murder charge. So there was kind of drama in the, in the life from the very beginning. Yeah, um, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, so, so Joseph Bologna, he was born on Christmas Day, 1745, in Guadeloupe. And indeed, his father, George de Bologna, was a white nobleman, a planter and enslaver. And his mother, who is often called Nanon, um, who later in her life seems to have gone by Anne de Neveau, um, was enslaved at the time of his birth, though seems to have negotiated her freedom um, sort of as a prerequisite of coming with the family to France. Uh, so indeed, the composer and other members of this family journeyed to France when he was a young child. Um, there was indeed, as you say, drama within the family, all sorts of uh, sort of trips between France and the Caribbean um, but eventually, uh, the goal seems to have been to move uh, the talented young Bologna to the metropole to pursue his education. And he's sometimes referred to as the Black Mozart, which I think is a very reductive and, 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 and disrespectful title because it's really, I think, removing his identity and his agency. And there was a lot more to him than just uh, uh, that description. Certainly. Um, musicologists and historians do find that label to be quite uh, sort of reductive and misleading. My colleague Marcos Balter, a composer, has written about this, a wonderful French literary scholar, Julian Ledford, as well. Um, it doesn't make sense to analogize his remarkable career, uh, according to to those of his contemporaries, and his output certainly deserves to be studied in its own terms, though it is true that Mozart and Bologna were relying on some common stylistic vocabulary of the late 18th century, even if they were products of quite distinct musical and social environments. Yeah, I did listen to some of his music last night and I did like it and it did remind me in places of the works of Mozart and uh, you see it in his string quartets and he, he wrote for the violin, he wrote a handful of symphonies uh, and then uh, a, a number of operas that he wasn't as prolific as Mozart but he did produce some quite significant works. Yes, really, really wonderful works. Um, and in fact, what's interesting about Bologna's career is that he was writing for all sorts of varied, um, sort of varied systems of 18th century patronage. Um, and indeed, I put his output sort of into four broad categories. That is, he was writing for noble patrons, very important noble patrons in 18th century France. He was working for a series of um, very high profile um, concert series as an orchestral player, soloist, ensemble director. He wrote operas, as you've mentioned, um, and he also published works for the flourishing French print markets. So he's covering all sorts of the fashionable genres of the late 18th century, concertos, operas, songs, chamber music. Um, his most famous pieces are likely his virtuoso compositions for violin, which was his own specialty. And how much of an issue was race during his lifetime then? It, well, one of the things that is very highly dramatized in the movie, but also based on fact, is a very difficult setback in Bologna's career, which came in the winter of 1775 into 76, when he applied for, but then was blocked from assuming the directorship of the Académie Royale de Musique, which is also known as the Paris Opera. And this was the royally sponsored troupe that produced serious operas, um, really, really prestigious cultural venue in pre-revolutionary France. 
And the, the state of the institution's archives make it difficult to state exactly what happened at this juncture because there are some gaps in the logbooks. Um, but the failure does very much seem to have been racially motivated. Um, an important music periodical at the time says that a group of star singers and dancers appealed to the queen, Marie Antoinette, to stop the candidacy from taking effect because they refused to work with this biracial musician. And it's important to situate that rejection at the Opera within the climate of really intensifying racial prejudice in Paris at the end of the Ancien Regime. Around this time, the French government perpetuated a series of punitive legislative acts um, that were aimed at um, sort of mandating registration and surveillance of um, individuals of African descent in Paris. So we need to read the affair of the opera against this broader backdrop of controversy over colonial policy, over colonial enslavement, and the ways that those policies were affecting metropolitan France. So Bologna had some relative wealth and privilege, but he was not isolated from that racism of the society in which he lived. And he knew Marie Antoinette. He had been hired to teach her music. So uh, she was familiar with him. And if she had wanted, she could probably have intervened and put in a word to, to support his candidacy. Yeah, certainly. Marie Antoinette was a very avid, avid musician. Um, from a young age, she had trained in singing a keyboard and in harp. And she would sponsor small-scale concerts in her apartments several times each week, uh, roughly 150 concerts every year. And she kept an elite group of composers and performers around her, including people like Saint-Georges, to supply music for those events. So a lot of his small-scale chamber music is very in line with her tastes. But indeed, um, at that particular point in time, she did not intervene, though she did continue to associate with him after that event. So it was clearly very complicated. So what happened then when the French Revolution broke out? How did that change his fortunes? Yeah, well, so certainly the 1790s are a very interesting period in the Chevalier de Saint-Georges' career. Um, he was very much involved in the circles of the Duke of Orléans, um, the Dukes of Orléans. Um, he had been involved in sort of the abolitionist circles breaking out in the 1790s. He joined the revolutionary army. He was briefly Im imprisoned um, under the terror, um, though at the very end of his life ended up back in Paris and back organizing concerts, which was um, sort of his main main professional employ. But uh, just a, a completely dramatic life that was involved in all of the most important political and cultural developments of the French 18th century. And it's a remarkable uh, to leading a regiment, uh, an old black regiment, and uh, it, you know, for someone who had started off as this virtuoso violinist and a musician to end up as a as a soldier and a, and a commander, it's a remarkable trajectory. Certainly so. Though I will say that, you know, from his very early teenage years, Saint-Georges had been enrolled in this very prestigious fencing academy. So the educational institution that he came to Paris to attend was this fencing academy of a Parisian um, master of arms um, named Taxi de la Boissière. And um, fencing was a skill associated with the historical French nobility. So he had developed uh, those connections, leading him into those high sort of military circles of the Orléans family, even from early in his time in France. Now, there was a lot of gossip during his lifetime about his relationships with uh, various women, especially aristocratic women. And I think that features in the movie as well. Uh, how much evidence do we have for this? Or is there some dramatic license here? 
Well, the movie takes, I will say, the movie takes a lot of dramatic license um, because there are so few sources from uh, Bologna's own perspective. I mean, his music is a huge point of evidence. There are a few, uh, you know, places where we see his signature on notarial documents or a few letters in his own hand. Uh, but we don't have, you know, long narrative accounts by him himself of his experiences. Uh, gossip periodicals at the time, diaries at the time by other people did mention um, uh, sort of liaison with aristocratic women in the French capital, including women for whom he musically collaborated um, the, yes, the movie talks about his, uh, really dramatizes a relationship with a Marquise, uh, the Marquise of Montalembert. And there was gossip about the potential of this relationship at the time, but nothing, nothing is substantiated. Unfortunately, we, we just don't know that much about his own personal experiences. How come his music isn't uh, better known? How come, now I was able to find recordings of the various works, but I'm surprised that he isn't more of a household name and that the works are familiar to us as, as, as examples of, of, of operas and violin concertos and other classical pieces from the 18th century. Well, and indeed, one of the things um, one of the things that I would caution, as I said, I don't know that historians should weigh in on biopic movies all the time because we're bound to be pedantic. Uh, but one thing that the movie there's a slide at the end of the film it's come out in America already um, it, that says, you know, so unfortunately, because of uh, sort of the political implications of Napoleon's reign uh, in the 19th century, much of Chevalier de Saint-Georges' music was lost and destroyed. And it is very much true that when Napoleon reinstated slavery in the French Empire in the early 19th century, there was huge uh, prejudice in France against uh, against people of African descent. It was a huge uh, controversy that affected uh, the reception of the Chevalier de Saint-Georges. Uh, but what is not true is that his music is lost. Um, there are many, many pieces that survive, many wonderful violin concertos, uh, wonderful string quartets, as you've mentioned, songs um, that are now fortunately coming back a little bit back into the public sphere as they belong. And do you think he is a good composer? You know, looking at the music purely on its own merits, uh, does it deserve uh, praise and recognition? Yeah, and so I'm a violinist as well. And so I feel like I sort of dug into this music and understood how it works in in many terms. Um, I really like his string quartets. There's a wonderful set that was published in 1779 um, that is in the most sort of modern style of the day. Indeed, Bologna was one of the very first French composers to write in that genre. And it privileges a sort of conversational dialogue between the four instrumental interlocutors. And what you learn through reading through these pieces is that Bologna was extremely adept at making a quartet fun to play. So every player gets a turn with the primary melodies, which is actually quite rare at that time. And the ways the material is passed between the voices is very satisfying. And he's doing something that is distinct from Mozart or Haydn, people who are also writing string quartets at that precise moment. Um, the other pieces that are really wonderful certainly are the violin concertos. These are giving us a, a really good sense of his own talents as a performer. Um, they're highly lyrical. They're very tuneful. They foreground and engaging back and forth between violinist and full orchestra. 
And the techniques, as I said, were quite forward-looking. They showcase very quick passage work for the left hand, um, very dexterous string crossings for the bow hand, and they also exploit the upper register of the instrument. So again, that was that was quite advanced for the time. Um, the, the movie will showcase a sort of virtuoso showdown between Bologna and Mozart, centered around one of Mozart's violin concertos. Uh, but technically speaking, uh, Bologna's violin concertos were just as difficult, uh, sort of more interestingly idiomatic in some ways and finally you're not connected with the movie so you can be honest it opens here in Ireland on the 9th of June would you recommend it to our listeners or should they just go on YouTube or Spotify or some of these other platforms and just listen to the music itself well, perhaps I'd recommend both. I mean, I Bologna is a historical figure for whom the state of the archive, combined with centuries of institutional racism, has made separating fact from fiction exceedingly difficult. Um, so I really appreciate more people having the opportunity to become familiar with this remarkable composer. Um, at the same time, though, I hope we'll be able to use this moment as a jumping off point for learning even more about the actual man and his music rather than perhaps just amplifying the mythology that has long surrounded him. Well, my thanks to Professor Julia Doe of the Department of Music at Columbia University for talking to me about the remarkable career and the wonderful music of Joseph Bologna. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.